0: A brief update, it's May the 12th, 2024, I've released just two episodes of this year, my father-in-law passed away in January, he bravely fought a multitude of health issues for well over 15 years, rest in peace John. My wife of more than 20 years, Lisa, is remarkably strong, much more so than I. Her outlook on life is always positive and has motivated me to resume my passion project. Research for new episodes is now well underway. Stay tuned and sincere thanks for subscribing to my podcast.
1: In the early 50s to mid-50s, the NBA was going through a real crisis. Uh, There was also no shot clock. The owner of the Syracuse Nationals, my dad's team, uh, came up with a concept of the 24-second clock.
0: Is that Danny Biasone?
1: Danny Biasone. He took the number of shots in a game divided by 48 minutes, came up with 24 seconds, It was done on a trial basis in a preseason game. It was so popular after one game, they adopted it uh, as a league rule in 55. Ironically, the Syracuse Nationals won the NBA championship that first year of the 24-second clock, and that rule saved the NBA. Danny Bison ultimately inducted in the Hall of Fame as a contributor for that, and I was named after Danny Bison. Uh Aha, okay, well, there you go. Which is the reason I wore 24 most of my career. Oh, wow, okay, that's fantastic and you are in Australia right now. You're talking NBA basketball. You're talking great teams. You're talking great individual players. Takes it off, and there's number 23, and of course, Johnny goes nuts. So, we're all getting goosebumps thinking about it now. I just tried to go out there and play my game. I have no idea what you're talking about, Adam. I don't like anybody. I'm not a people person. Strand, you made the pass. Yes. Christian, can you catch the ball? Yes.
0: All the stars were aligned, and all the muscles fought at the right time, and I was able to get off the ground and throw one down. I was saving that as a surprise for you. And now,
1: introducing your host, for in all airness,
0: Adam Ryan. Welcome to episode 97. Thanks for joining me. Today, I'm happy to welcome Syracuse University great and 18-year NBA veteran, Danny Shays. Danny's a great storyteller and shares plenty of memories from his career in hoops Plus, we do a deep dive on the immeasurable impact that his Hall of Fame father, the legendary Dolph Shows, had on the NBA. Towards the end of the episode, I'll share another great podcast review. You. you can add yours by visiting slash review Show notes for this episode, including links to numerous topics covered, will be available at slash 97 Now, onto the show. My guest today is the longest-tenured Syracuse University player in NBA history. He's a member of the Orangemen's All-Century team and an 18-year NBA veteran. Danny Shays, thanks for joining me.
1: Absolutely, Adam. Thanks for having me.
0: It's a pleasure to have you on, and I'm excited to chat with you today. Now, uh, given that your father is the legendary Hall of Famer, Dolph Shays, uh, how would you describe your unique childhood and an entry into the sport of basketball?
1: Well, what was interesting about that is, is that I got a, an education and an access to basketball on a level that really wasn't normal at that time. For instance, there was no ESPN. Uh, the NBA wasn't televised as a regular thing. And so people didn't have direct access to the NBA unless they lived in an NBA city. There might have been a game of the week kind of thing. You know, in, in any story about me, they touch pretty heavily on my dad's career, who was one of the pioneer stars in the NBA. Uh, played 16 years from 48 to 64, which was a you know, pretty unique thing because players didn't make much money. So normally they played a few years and had to go get a real job. Uh, but my dad was one of the pioneer stars. Uh, in his era, the NBA's all-time leading scorer, all-time leading rebounder, and made every uh, honorary team, was in the NBA's silver anniversary team, the top 12 players of the first 25 years, and was one of the NBA's top 50 players as well. Incredible. So there's a lot of history there. And, and the reason I bring it up is because it does kind of color a lot of my experiences. One trivia piece that may be pretty interesting. In the early 50s to mid 50s, uh, the NBA was going through a real crisis because they had two rules and we don't have to get too deep into it. But there were two rules that kind of defined the game. One was if you got fouled in a non-shooting foul, you got one shot. So there's a one shot foul and a two shot foul. Uh, there was also no shot clock at that time. So what happened is if a team was behind at half, they would go out and foul because they knew the other team could only score one, they'd get the ball back. Then the team that was ahead said, well, we're not going to let that happen, so they'd foul back. And the league kind of dissolved into the free throw contest in the second half of games. It was culminated by the the Minneapolis Lakers playing a game that the final score was 19-17 to 17, mm-hmm. uh, because teams slowing the game down. So they knew something had to be done to save the NBA. And the owner of the Syracuse Nationals, my dad's team, uh, came up with the concept of the 24-second clock.
0: Is that Danny Bison?
1: Danny Bison. Uh He took the number of shots in a game divided by 48 minutes, came up with 24 seconds, the idea being that if team used 24 seconds each time down, the pace of the game and the scoring of the game wouldn't change much, but that issue would be resolved. Uh, so it was done on a trial basis in a preseason game. It was so popular after one game they adopted it uh, as a league rule in 55 ironically the syracuse nationals won the nba championship that first year Mm -hmm. uh in 55 and uh first year of the 24 second clock and that rule saved the nba danny byzone ultimately inducted in the hall of fame as a contributor for that and i was named after danny byzone aha okay well there you go which is the reason i wore 24 most of my career oh wow okay that's fantastic there were only a couple of times I didn't wear it. One was, in, unfortunately, in Denver. A teammate had the number, Bill Hanslick. Mm-hmm. So I was 34. Uh, and then when I was in Milwaukee the first year, uh, there was a player, Jay Humphreys wore it. And then, so I wore number 10. It was my 10th year in the league. Then he got traded. And so I wore it after that. So, but for most of my career, I was, uh, was 24.
0: You must have read my mind because one of the things I'd like to ask later in the chat is the uh, significance behind your jersey number. That might be the best answer I've ever heard. You briefly wore number 26 as well with the LA Lakers, if I'm not mistaken, based on basketball reference.
1: What happened was all the numbers were retired. So George Lynch wore 24, 44 was Jerry West had been retired. So there weren't many numbers left. So 26 happened to be my <laughs> wife's birthday. So I ended up picking that. But <laughs> uh, but like I said, outside of those occasions where it was untenable, my dad wore number four. Yes. I always had some variation with a four in it, except for that 26 number. In Milwaukee, was four, 14, 24 were retired, and then 34, 44, 54 were all taken. There were no four numbers uh, at all until Jay Humphreys got traded. Then I got 24.
0: Oh, that's great. That's the best answer I've heard in terms of uh, the reason behind a number. That's fantastic. And your name itself is based on the advent of the 24-second clock in some way too. Right. Thank you for sharing that.
1: Uh, but I grew up with a very different experience. My dad started the second basketball camp in America. So when I was growing up in the uh, in the 60s, it was an unusual thing to be able to go to basketball camp. The, the specialty camps were just starting to be popular. So I got a great basketball education.
0: Was that alongside Bob Cousy?
1: Uh yes, he and Bob Cousy started the first camps in the early 50s. Uh and it was a one week long camp, basketball only, so it was literally 10 hours a day on the court. Uh you play 3 games a day, you'd have several hours of basketball training. Uh, and then free time to get individual instruction. It was a hugely intensive experience. And again, unheard of back in that era. Mm. You know, here in the U.S., they would have things called sleepaway camp, very popular in the Northeast because you had so many big cities, New York, Boston, Washington. Uh, and so for, you know, teenage or, you know, uh, school-age kids to be stuck in a big city for the summer was kind of a drag. So uh, there was this whole... Uh, culture around, uh, sleepaway, summer sleepaway camps where literally kids would go off into these camp areas for eight weeks in the summer. You know, some would be very sports focused, some artsy focused, uh, you know, some just, you know, kind of different disciplines. And so my dad had the first concept, he and Bob Cousy of a basketball specialty camp. They ran it for one week at the end of the summer. My dad actually ended up buying into a uh, campground and I spent virtually every summer at eight-week sleepaway camp, and then basketball camp. So I trained you know, sports and, and basketball all summer every year, and it was a really unheard of experience at that era.
0: Oh, for sure. And it obviously paid dividends as well in terms of your development and your career as well.
1: Uh, I didn't see my dad play. He retired when I was about four years old. Uh, but when I was a teenager, early teenager, he was the coach of an NBA team, the then Buffalo Braves, which is now the Clippers. They moved to San Diego and then up to L.A. to become the uh, L.A. Clippers. But he was the first coach, so I got to be a ball boy when I was 10 and 11 years old. Uh, so I got to see all the stars of the time up close working the visitors locker room. Pistol Pete Maravich, Kareem Jabbar, then Lou Cinder as a rookie. Uh, all the stars and got to you know, meet them and go to practice and see how NBA teams were run and, and, you know, be the official schlepper and rebounder. <laughs> uh, and then I actually grew up and played against Kareem for eight years. It actually came full circle, but, uh, and then my dad was inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame. So I had obviously inside access to that. And then just throughout his life, being part of all the, uh, kind of the insider experiences around the NBA, it just gave me a great basketball education.
0: Very unique, uh, introduction to the sport, no doubt. Uh, I read somewhere that your dad was already well over six feet tall when he was barely a teenager. Were you of a similar ilk or your head and shoulders above, uh, your peers?
1: Yeah, I was. I was actually taller than my teacher in third grade. <laughs> it was elementary school, so she was short 4'11", but I was still over five feet Wow! Uh, when I was eight. And so they had to bring me a desk and chair from the high school because I couldn't fit on the kids' furniture. So uh, so I always used to go into the class and have the joke that they had my throne in the middle of the room for me to sit on because I had this big, giant high school furniture when everybody else was sitting at their elementary school desk. So it was... Uh, Kind of a kick back then, but because my dad was very famous locally, we, we lived in a relatively small town and uh was six foot eight, so everyone expected me to be tall, so it was never a, a negative in any way. It was a pretty well accepted thing that I was uh gonna grow up to be a pretty tall kid.
0: Well, according to the uh post standard in New York, uh, when I was doing my research for our chat today, you play with Jamesville DeWitt High School,
1: the two towns, Jamesville and DeWitt, yeah,
0: you led the Red Rams, I believe they were called.
1: That was it. I've never actually seen a Red Ram.
0: <laughs> there have I, actually, now I think about it. That was us. Uh, in 1975, you won the division crown and also the Northern Conference title, including a 29-point performance in the final, which is uh, fantastic. Uh, what sort of springs to mind from those years in high school and, and just overall um, your progression in the game, Danny?
1: Again, growing up, Syracuse was where my dad played professionally uh was at that point kind of a college town but even so the Syracuse basketball program was not a major program at that time so high school sports was a big deal i was fortunate to grow up in a very competitive time middle of the baby boom so every house was full of kids all the high schools were you know were loaded with kids and and sports was a big deal in the northeast um so growing up we had a, a very fun very competitive environment and uh, my high school was decent sized uh my class was you know 380 so you know good programs and what i remember the most about that time was uh, we had very good rivalries there was no state championship at that time and so the county championship was a huge huge deal growing up and then going through to my senior year uh one of our rival high schools had one of the top quarterbacks in the country as a two sport player we just coincidentally had those years where both teams had really good players you know it was public school so you got what you got coming in and we just had one of those years where we just had a bunch of really good players. A lot of, uh, I think there were five kids on my team who played college sports and five kids on the other team. Uh, division one, you know, obviously I was a division one player. The other kid, Pete Hollahan, uh, ended up playing 12 years in the NFL as a, as a tight end. Hmm. Very athletic. Probably the highlight, it was in the middle of my senior year. Uh, we played uh, each team in our conference twice, you know, once on the road, once at home. The first time we played Liverpool, as they were known, at their school, we won a very, very close game. I, I had an injured ankle at the time, so I, I only played limited minutes, and we ended up winning a, a, a game by one point uh, at their place, and the rematch at our school was snowed out due to a blizzard, so they decided not to play the game. Fast forward, the season went on. Both teams continued undefeated. Uh, we ended up finishing the season 13-0. and uh, in the conference, and they were twelve and one with the only loss coming to us. So at that point, we had to play the final game, but because of the season, because of the schedules, there was no time to play it uh, because there were playoffs and the regional playoffs. So we had to wait till after the season for both teams was over. Our gym was one of those small old fifties gyms. Uh, there was so much interest, there was a lot of pressure to move the game, the championship game, to where Syracuse University played for in a ten thousand seat stadium. Uh, the problem for us was that the other school was three times the size of ours. So we felt we'd lose the home court advantage because they'd have so many more students. So we ended up playing the game at our place, a small 500 seat gym. Uh, and we gave them a hundred seats to give out in a lottery, but there was so much interest in the game that the local TV station decided to televise the game live. Oh, wow. Which in 1977 was a huge deal. Uh at that time in the US the NBA finals weren't even televised live. Mm. If it was a weeknight they were put on tape delay at 11:30 cuz the ratings weren't any better than the shows uh, that were on, the, you know the nightly shows. So it was a huge deal to have a high school game televised live. So we ended up playing Liverpool for the championship. It was a close back and forth game. I had a, a big game. They ended up tying it with a half court shot at the buzzer to send it into overtime. <laughs> oh wow. Uh we ended up winning uh, I think by 3 points at the end. You know, if you made a movie about it, you know, people would be on the edge of their seats. It was like that exciting a, a, an opportunity. Like I said, especially the way the game was scheduled and then put on television. And, uh, you know, it's a big, big deal. So every once in a while, every 10 years or so, I break the game film out. So now I have a son who's who's that age, who's a junior in high school. So I so say, come on, now you can see what dad looked like back in the old days. We, <laughs> we joke, we put him in the way back machine, take him back to the, you know, back 40 years so he can see what the old timers look like.
0: What a great story. I was going to ask you, have you seen the film, but you've actually got a copy of it? That's uh, even more incredible.
1: Yeah, I do have a copy of it. And, uh, it's, it's actually very fun to watch. The game was very different. Uh, there was no three point line, of course. And there was no, um, uh, no shot clock, uh, in high school at the time. So that's just starting to come into high school play now. So in our era, everything was inside, you know, teams used their, their post up players, center player, uh, and anything over 18 feet was a bad shot because there was no reason to shoot like a three-point length shot in that era. Uh, as a result, you know, having a big center on your team was a huge advantage. So what we used to call inside-out basketball, where the ball would go into the center and then plays would run off of that, versus in today's game, where everyone runs to the three-point line, and that's the dominant shot. So uh, it was a very different style of play, but it's fun to look back and watch, you know, what basketball, what, how we played 40 years ago, compared to the Top high schools in today's game. And, uh, we'd have fared pretty well. I mean, watching the game now, you know, we, we played pretty good basketball back in those days.
0: That's fascinating to hear. Thanks for sharing these stories too. Much appreciated. Uh, now if I forgot the timeline right. In July of 1977, you flew to Israel and played for Team USA at the, uh, is it the Maccabea Games?
1: Maccabea World Games. Yes.
0: And you won a gold medal and you were coached by none other than your father, Dolph. I think you were 18 at the time.
1: Right. You're just graduating from high school.
0: What was that experience like and how did that impact your life going forward?
1: What made that so fantastic? So, the, so just a brief history. The Maccabee Games is essentially known as the Jewish Olympics. It's a sporting event that was started actually back in the 30s, naturally interrupted for World War II, but every four years, the year after the Olympics, Uh, Jews from Jewish teams from all over the world to get together and compete in a multitude of sports, just like an Olympic event. There's opening ceremonies. They'll compete in 30 or 40 sports, you know, as, as it's evolved. Obviously that's grown and you may have 50 countries sending teams in, in the different sports. So it's, it has every bit of the camaraderie and the, you know, the energy of an Olympic style event. It's actually the third largest sporting event in the world Mm. after the Olympic games and the Pan American games. Uh, it's obviously not real well known outside of the Jewish community because it is, uh, you know, only Jewish athletes. But the idea is to connect Jewish youth around the world through sport. It's a fantastic organization. They, like I said, they put on the games every four years in Israel. And that was the first time I had heard of the games, uh, you know, in high school. And then actually being able to go with my dad as the coach was a tremendous experience. We had a loaded team. Major college stars, uh, you know, who played on our team. We were very, very good. Even though I was, you know, destined to the NBA, uh, I was the youngest player on the team. There were there were two high school players. The rest were all mature college players. Uh, two players had been drafted into the NBA. Uh, a player named Joel Kramer, who got drafted by the uh, uh, the Phoenix Suns, and Luke Cohen, uh, point guard, uh, had also been drafted. So uh, a very, very strong team. But here's what made the trip so amazing. And looking back years later, it's even more amazing in nineteen seventy seven the pro team in Israel called Maccabi Tel Aviv, uh, one of the strongest teams in Europe, for the first time in their history. Remember at this point, Israel is only thirty years old as a country. It had been founded in the late forties. This is now, like i said the you know the late seventies and for the first time, Maccabi Tel Aviv broke through and won the european championship and It was an incredible experience uh, for uh, basketball in Israel and sport in Israel as a whole. Uh, and for the first time, Israel was really on the world map from a sports standpoint. Uh, never considered a sports country, uh, but this breakthrough, I mean, they beat all the best teams in Europe. They actually made a fantastic movie about it called On the Map. Uh, their star player, ironically, is a player named Tal Brody, who grew up in the U.S. Uh, and in the 60s was drafted in the NBA, went over to play in Israel and decided to stay, became the father of basketball in Israel. So now fast forward 12 years, Israel is on the world stage. They win the European cup and we ended up playing them in the Maccabi finals. Uh, because it was, you know, the Maccabi games, uh, the non-Israeli players weren't eligible. It was, you know, to be on the Israeli team was only the Israeli players, but they had, you know, probably eight players from their European championship team. We played them in the gold medal game. And it was one of the most exciting games I've ever been in. Sellout crowd at their stadium, 10,000 to watch the game. Uh Went down to the wire. Both teams played great. We ended up winning it on two free throws with three seconds to go. Wow. Bedlam broke out. When you look at a time where Israel had just won the European Cup and then the brash Americans come in and, and beat them at the buzzer, it was uh, kind of a torment for the Israelis, but a huge triumph for us. And uh, just an incredibly memorable experience. But being able to tour Israel, to be there where all the history happened, uh, you know, was something that was a transformational experience for me. Uh, four years later, I went back as a college senior, had already been drafted by the Jazz. Uh, and at that point, the power structure had kind of flipped. We were the dominant team, uh, won the gold medal easily, you know, had a fantastic experience. After that, of course, played in the NBA and using Olympic rules, pro players weren't eligible until the dream team in 92. And at that point, uh, you know, I was a mature veteran in the NBA and I went back as a contributor and as a sponsor, but I let the other kids play. Uh, and then I went back actually a few years ago as a coach and coached one of the Masters teams. Uh, so I've had a fantastic experience going back and forth to Israel through this, you know, this sporting organization and, and just having a fantastic connection uh, back to Israel.
0: First of all, I'll have to try and chase up that movie you refer to. It's called On the Map.
1: It's called On the Map, yeah. It's an incredible story.
0: Have you seen that final game in 1977? Was that telecast or that didn't go to air?
1: I have never seen it again. No, I, I haven't seen any video of it. My guess is it might—you know—it might exist somewhere. I've never really asked. Uh, but Tal Brody, the star of the Maccabi uh, Tel Aviv team that won the European Championship, uh, we're still close to this day. Uh, he lives in Israel full time. He's uh, actually a goodwill ambassador for the country. Uh, so he's in the U.S. all the time. I see him at the NBA All Star events, all the Israel sporting events, and uh, still have a great connection to the organization.
0: That's really great. And also, I believe you've had numerous family members since as well who've actually participated in those games too?
1: Uh, three generations, yes. Uh, you know, obviously, my dad coached. I played. I have uh, three nieces who played volleyball, a nephew who ran track. Uh, next year, uh, my son Logan will play uh, in the Open Games again. So 2021. Uh, he'll be a graduating senior in high school. So uh, so we're going to stick another generation in there.
0: Fantastic to hear, Danny. Great stuff. Um, now, you ultimately selected Syracuse as your college of choice. However, I did read that USC was definitely in consideration too. And I'm sure that colleges across the country, uh, particularly, I guess, given your pedigree, uh, must have been seeking your signature. What was the recruiting process like before you uh, would end up signing with Syracuse.
1: Well, the teams that ended up being my final three was Syracuse-Princeton. Uh, they had a fantastic coach by the name of Pete Carrill. Uh, and he and my father were very close. He's a very old school, uh, you know, rough and tough kind of coach. Uh, my dad very much respected. Uh, and then Wake Forest in the ACC uh, was the third choice as far as that final group. Ultimately, it came down to looking back at it. I made an emotional choice uh, to go to Syracuse because I had something to prove. Uh, my dad was a big star there. And, uh, you know, they had a star at the center there, Roosevelt Bowie. Uh, when I ultimately went to school there, it was because the concept of playing a Twin Towers, two centers, uh, or a center and a tall power forward was just being revolutionized by University of Kentucky, the national champions. So when I went to Syracuse, uh, the idea was to kind of go to a Twin Towers setup, uh, at Syracuse. we tried it a few times. It actually worked very well. Ultimately, our coach didn't go with it. So I ended up, you know, being kind of the backup center instead of, uh, you know, Twin Towers power forward. Uh, but ironically, when I finally got the opportunity to start as a senior, led the team in every category, uh, ended up being drafted, uh, you know, 13th pick, the second center picked in the draft and ended up with the longest career of any player ever from Syracuse. So, uh, it turned out pretty good uh, at the end of the day. Absolutely. You know, looking back, if I had gone to Wake Forest, I would have, uh, started in the ACC as a freshman. If I'd gone to Princeton, I would have started there as a freshman. You know, at the end of the day, you know, I, I still kind of go back and forth. Should I have like gone away from home and like branched out in a different way? Uh, I'm still very connected to the program. 40 plus years later, my coach, Jim Beheim is still there. Uh, the longest tenured coach in college. Mm. So I still, uh, you know, am a full-time radio broadcaster. I have a daily talk show uh, that I do for the ESPN station in Syracuse. I do the pregame shows for the basketball games. As things turned out, it worked out very well. I've got no complaints.
0: It's great to hear that you're still involved with the program and uh, doing plenty of things in basketball to this day. Uh, now is as good a time as any, I guess, to talk briefly about your father, the legendary Dolph Jays. Sure. Uh, quick overview of his amazing career and these stats are courtesy of uh, basketballreference.com. He's a 12-time All-Star and a 12-time All-NBA selection. Six of those were first-team nominations. He was an NBA champion in 1955 with the Syracuse Nationals, which are now known as the Philadelphia 76ers. Right. He's got career averages of 18.5 points, 12.1 rebounds, and 3.1 assists per game. And he was honored as one of the NBA's top 50 players of all time during a halftime ceremony at the 97 All-Star game in Cleveland. Right. Uh, he passed away, sadly, in 2015. He was age 87. Uh, we could easily really dedicate an entire episode to your father. But what are just a few of your fondest memories, either on or off the court, of Dolph?
1: Memories I have of him as an NBA professional or really as an NBA coach with the then Buffalo Braves. Uh, but a couple of interesting things about him. So uh, as a founding player of the league, he has a couple of very interesting kind of statistics. Some of them are good trivia questions. Uh, but some of them are very, are very kind of unique. For instance, uh, there were five players in NBA history at one time were the NBA's all time leading scorer. Um, as you know, now the, the record is held by Kareem Jabbar. Uh, but at the beginning of the NBA, the, from zero to 11,000 and change points was George Mikan. He was the first star of the league and was the first guy who was considered the NBA's all time leading scorer. Mm-hmm. That record was broken by my dad who held it to 19,200 and something. Uh, so he was then the NBA's all-time leading scorer. His record was broken by Bob Pettit, who is the third all-time leading scorer. I should ask you this for your trivia research. Uh, (laughs) and then that record was broken by Will Chamberlain, who is, you know, in his era, the NBA's all-time leading scorer. And then Kareem Jabbar broke that record and holds it to this day. So interestingly enough, you know, Michael Jordan, LeBron James, Kobe, none of those guys ever were the NBA's all-time leader. So my dad was the second person to hold that distinction. Uh, as you mentioned, he was an all-star 12 years. Uh, the only reason it was only 12 was because they didn't start the all-star game until his fourth year in the league. Ah, uh, for us. And uh, he came in in 48, and the first all-star game was in 1951. So he played in the first all-star game. And this is a very cute side story. So for my dad's 80th birthday, had a big family party, and the NBA sent us a highlight reel from NBA Entertainment uh, for some of his great highlights. And back then, uh, Converse was one of the big sponsors of the video. Uh, obviously, it wasn't video back then. It was all on film. And they used to, in the movie theaters, instead of movie previews, they would show sports highlights or news highlights back then. The famous announcer, Marty Glickman, another Syracuse grad, was doing the voiceover, and they sent us a highlight of the first All-Star game. Wow! And it opens up, and here's the opening tip. Bob Cousy gets the ball, throws it ahead to Shays, who scores. And we all looked <laughs> at each other, and we went... Was that the first basket in All Star history? <laughs> and nobody knew, so we played it back. And yeah, that was the first All Star game. That was the opening tip. And so I told my dad, I go, "That's the first basket." He goes, "No, you're that. That can't be true." So we watched it again, <laughs> and he didn't know that he had scored the first basket in All Star history. So I called the guy who runs NBA Entertainment, a very good friend named Charlie Rosenzweig, and he didn't know either. Like they would never, you know, put it all together. So that year and 2011 was the 60th anniversary of the first All-Star game. It was in LA at the uh, Staples Center. So one of the timeouts, they played the highlight back in history. Here's the first basket in All-Star history. My dad got a nice salvation. It was just a great experience. Wow. But that was ironic. Nobody knew he had scored, even himself. He didn't know he scored the first basket uh, in NBA All-Star history.
0: That is fantastic. What a great story. Thanks again for sharing that. The 1955 NBA Finals went to a seventh and deciding game. Right, And it came down to pretty much the game's final possession. In the decades that followed, what do you recall that your dad told you about how that famous series ended and his memories of it?
1: Well, the biggest memory he had of it was that Syracuse, a small city of 200 plus thousand, uh, is one of the smallest cities in North America that has won a professional sports championship. One of the other ones is Green Bay, the Packers, NFL. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there's very few small cities that have won championships. So, uh just some quick NBA history. Uh the NBA was founded officially in 1946. Uh but the, it wasn't called the NBA till later. There were two competing leagues. There was the Basketball Association of America, the BAA, and the National Basketball League, the NBL. One was in the big cities, had the New York Knicks, the Boston Celtics, Chicago, etc., Washington, the Philadelphia Warriors. The other league had teams in the smaller cities, Syracuse, Rochester, New York, which is a small city, uh, on and on. Uh, in 1949, the leagues merged. So the NBA was officially called the NBA starting in 49. Uh, so then there was a lot of push over time for the smaller cities to move into the bigger cities. Uh, the Milwaukee Hawks ended up in, in Atlanta, ultimately, after Saint, you know, to St. Louis and then to Atlanta. Uh, and then in the early 60s, when the NBA moved west, they offered Syracuse the choice of either San Francisco or Los Angeles. The owner didn't want to move there. And so the Philadelphia Warriors ended up moving out to San Francisco. And obviously the Minneapolis Lakers moved to Los Angeles, became the Los Angeles Lakers. And then the, my dad's team, the Syracuse Nationals moved to Philadelphia and became the Philadelphia 76ers. So my dad also has the distinction of being the only player in NBA history to be his team's leading scorer every year they were in the NBA. Incredible. So from 49 to 63, he was the team's leading scorer. And then they moved to Philadelphia and became the 76ers. So at that point, he had been in the league 14 years, and they offered him the job as player-coach, which he took. So he was actually player-coach for a year. After that first year, they decided it was a little clunky, so they offered him to either play full-time or coach full-time. He decided to coach full-time. Looking back, he regretted it. He he said he should have gone back to play because he still felt he had – uh, you know, some gas in the tank, but he, he ended up with a full 16-year career, which was unheard of back in that era, because mm. players didn't make much money. Normally, they played a few years, got married, had a family, and then had to get a real job, or they had a job in the summer. A lot of those guys were insurance agents or car salesmen, or you know, they had some other job or started a small business, uh, and they're off time because they needed to make money to support the family. So a uh, little NBA history there, and uh, you know how things came to Syracuse, but for him. Going back to your original question, uh, for him to be a small city to win the championship uh, was a, always a badge of honor. I mean, he grew up in New York City in the Bronx, but lived his entire life in, in Syracuse, New York. And uh, uh, he got drafted there as a young player. He was only 19 years old when he graduated college. Uh, he finished high school two years early at 16, uh, then graduated college in three years uh, at New York University, a prestigious academic school, and then was in the NBA at 19 as a college graduate ended up playing 16 years till he was 35, and could have played more. So his biggest regret was that he wasn't the first player to 20,000 points. He ended up at 19,200 and something. Mm. And if he had played that last year, he would have been. So, you know, water under the bridge. He was the first player to 15,000, uh, as you know, and, and
0: everything after that.
1: But to this day, the Syracuse winning the NBA championship is a uh, you know, huge badge of honor for the smaller city.
0: Yeah, just fantastic to hear this background and coming from obviously his son. Uh, to hear this, it's just great. So, thanks very much for elaborating on it, Danny. I just want to quickly thank a great friend of mine, Todd Spear. He's here in Australia as well. Uh, he provided some of the information that I've used in research today. Uh, one of the things he showed me was a screenshot from one of the NBA guides. I think that Xander Hollander produced, and it had a little tidbit about your dad. Apparently, during a game at the Palestra, when he was watching, he apparently came out of the stands when you were getting roughed up by somebody on the court. Is that accurate? Sort of. Do you mind elaborating? Well, <laughs>
1: <laughs> another side stories. We love our side stories. Sure. My dad was also, by the way, was coach of the year for the Philadelphia 76ers that year. Incredible. And then after the coaching job in Buffalo, he worked for the NBA as the supervisor of officials so he hired all the refs you know did all the um you know the grading of their performances training all that he was in charge of all that for about a 5 year stretch in the mid 70s and as a result he was obviously very aware of refereeing it was a you know big topic for him so we were playing a game at Villanova uh, which is one of our rivals in the Big East conference back in that era i wasn't getting roughed up and i was getting really bad calls from the refs So close game down to the wire, you know, posting up, fronting the guy, perfect pass right over the head, made the catch, got called for an offensive foul that fouled me out of the game. Horrible call. (laughs) And I'm a guy who tells you I never committed a foul in my career. (laughs) That really was a bad call. But anyway, you know, part of the game. So I ended up fouling out. We lose a close game. And after the game, my dad went down because he wanted to talk to the refs, being that he was the supervisor of the NBA officials. Uh, well, needless to say, the security, you know, saw him worked up and, you know, snarling and ended up coming over and talking him out of it. Uh, nothing ever happened. There wasn't a big, you know, altercation of any kind. But he did, didn't go after anyone, you know. But it ended up uh, uh, in the days of the media uh, becoming a big story. And I had friends call me all over the country. Is it true that uh, your dad beat up the ref? <laughs> okay, no, that's not true. Not what happened. But uh, he was always a great fan. Uh, one time in the NBA – he was at a game of mine in Denver, and I, again, same thing. He thought I was getting a couple of bad calls. So he came down out of the stands and leaned over the scorer's table, and as the ref ran by, he yelled to him, you know, I never should have hired you. <laughs> yeah.
0: That's great.
1: As you can imagine I didn't get a good call for about two years after that. But uh <laughs> one of the pitfalls of uh, you know, having your dad as the former supervisor of the officials.
0: Wow, that's fantastic. What a great story. Uh really Dolph's impact on the league, not just as a player, but a coach, uh looking after referees, all the hiring and whatnot, his impact is just immeasurable.
1: He had a, a tremendous impact on the league, uh in every way. Like I said, he was a star player, coach of the year uh office executive great ambassador for the nba and uh so for him uh you know he had a great run you know he, he made it to 87 had a very full life was it you know had his marbles and was at home until the end uh so you know hey, we, we should all be so lucky
0: absolutely uh now moving on to you career at Syracuse um you mentioned Jim Boeheim there a moment ago who's still coaching the team to this day which is an incredible feat in itself uh as a freshman your orangeman went 22 and 6 and you played all but four of those games and you made it to the NCAA tournament before losing a first round match I think it was a one point defeat in overtime against Western Kentucky
1: yeah that was one of the big upsets of the year That, that hurt that was a bad that was a bad loss
0: What do you sort of remember of your freshman campaign and and just the uh, atmosphere and being involved in the NCAA tournament for the first time?
1: Well, I went from playing in a small high school gym to a 10,000-seat arena uh, that I grew up going to games in. The Manly Fieldhouse, uh, as it was called, was originally built as a football practice site. Syracuse obviously being a bad weather, bad climate uh, area, very harsh winters. Uh, you know, football team had an indoor practice site uh, built in the, in the 60s. And originally, it had a dirt floor because, again, for football. So when, the, when they played basketball games, they rolled out bleachers. The court was elevated. It was about four feet off the ground. Hmm. And I used to love going to the games as a, as a kid, uh, you know, from being 10 years old on. And I remember sitting there kind of chin on the court, you know, watching the games and, and uh, you know, being able to go to the practices. The coach, before Jim Beheim became a friend, a guy named Roy Danforth. So I grew up watching the orange play from, uh, you know, from a little kid. And then now uh, I got to play it, you know, for them in that stadium. It was completely redesigned by then, converted to a full time basketball arena. Uh, but what made it really special, it was perfectly round and the court was dead in the center. So it echoed and reverberated. So the, it was a much louder building than you would expect from, you know, from the size of it because of that. And it was a super exciting place to play the end of my junior year, we had had a 57-game home winning streak. Uh, and in one of the great rivalry games in history, we ended up losing a close game uh, to Georgetown in the last game at the Manly Fieldhouse, and then opened up the Carrier Dome, uh, which is where they play today, which is their football stadium. So Syracuse is famous for leading the country in attendance every year. Uh, the big games, uh, Duke, North Carolina, will sell out 35,000-plus. I was one of the few players to play in both the Manly Fieldhouse and the, the new Carrier Dome. So, uh, so that part was very exciting. But that freshman year, we had, uh, an NBA player, Marty Burns, uh, and young Roosevelt Bowie and his, uh, his classmate, Louis Orr. They were known as the Louie and Bowie show. Uh, so we had a very strong team. And all those, those years through were, uh, you know, we were top ranked teams. And, uh, again, getting a national TV game was a big deal because there was only like a game of the week. Uh, being a top-rated team, you know, periodically we'd get that national game, and uh, and it was uh, like I said, a super exciting time to play.
0: Yeah, that's great. Some great memories there. As a sophomore, Syracuse went twenty-six and four. You missed just one game and made it to the second round of the tournament this time. Right. We'll skip ahead to your junior year though, and that's the same season I believe that you joined the Big East Conference. Right. What was it like to transition from I think an independent team to being part of a Big East? Conference, which obviously became very well known and imposing over the years. Sure. Again, going 26 and 4, you played in every game as a junior.
1: Yeah. Well, so quick history of the Big East. Sure. Uh, at the time, you know, the Atlantic Coast Conference with North Carolina, North Carolina State, Duke was not yet a power. Uh, but that conference was really the power conference. And then, of course, there was the, back then, I think it was the Pac 8, then the Pac 10, the Pacific Athletic Conference, which was UCLA, uh, who obviously was a dynasty in the 60s. Uh, and some of the great teams, Arizona, Oregon, Oregon State. Back then, the Pac-8, then the Pac-10, and the ACC were the dominant basketball conferences. Uh, periodically, the, the Big Ten with Indiana uh, would kind of jump through, but Indiana was really kind of the heart of that conference. So, But the Northeast had all the best basketball. There was just never a conference in the Northeast. The uh, athletic director of Providence, a guy named Dave Gabbett, had the idea to put together the Big East schools in a basketball-only conference and called it the Big East. Um, the timing was in the, in in that year, ESPN, uh, the, the sports network was founded in 1979 and they were looking for something to put on. I mean, it was a brand new television station. They didn't really know what they were yet. So the big East was founded and we started out as a national conference because ESPN put on big East games, uh, being housed in Connecticut, uh, you know, put on big East games, uh, every week. And so the teams that went in, most of them were basketball-only schools, schools like St. John's and Villanova, uh, Georgetown, uh, you know, Syracuse was one of the few with a football program, uh, UConn, University of Connecticut, Seton Hall. None of those schools had football. It was a basketball-only conference, and uh, uh, and the teams came, they gelled immediately. Uh, but it took one more year to get a, all the schedules cleared up where we could make it a real, like, full-time conference. So even though it was founded in 79, 80 was the first year they had a conference championship, which is my senior year. Uh-huh. And then, you know, the Big East grew so quickly, by 1985, just four years later, they had five teams in the final eight uh, and three teams in the final four of the NCAA championship. And the Big East took over college basketball immediately. So eighty eighty one was really the first year that's considered, you know, like the real Big East We had a little bit of a down year. Uh, Roosevelt, Bowie, and Lewis Orr had both uh, graduated. Lewis ended up playing a little bit in the NBA. Uh, Roosevelt played a very long career overseas in Italy, uh, mostly 17 or 18 years overseas. So that first year, we had a little bit of a transition year. We started out about 500, but then we rallied at the end of the year. And the first Big East tournament, the conference tournament, was played in Syracuse because we had the big stadium. And a few years later, it would be moved permanently to Madison Square Garden. Uh, but the first couple of years, it moved around. And so the first Big East tournament, again, we were in the middle of the pack of the league, ended up winning our way through and played the championship game against Villanova. We ended up winning a game, the game in triple overtime, still considered one of the top games in Syracuse history. And what was so fun about that game is that it obviously was on television. Uh, not a huge crowd, only about 17,000 at the game.
0: <laughs> only about seven 8,000.
1: As the game kept dragging on, people joined in. They were watching it on TV and they all would go, Oh no, that's another overtime. More people would watch, you know, and you'd see like the entire city stopped. Uh, and I remember I went to a restaurant after the game. Uh, and when we got there, there was like 200 people in the bar and nobody in the restaurant because everybody <laughs> had been watching the game and nobody would go to their tables when their reservations were called because the game was so exciting. So I got to the restaurant and I got the first table because everyone was so excited. We were there, got a nice standing ovation. <laughs> a great escort to the table, and people were happy to give up their tables because it was such an exciting win, and it was was really funny. Like I said, the bar and the restaurant was packed, Uh, everyone watching the game, but nobody was actually eating in the restaurant.
0: What a great story. So that was your senior year. You had a terrific individual season, and you led the team in scoring, rebounding, and blocks, almost 15 points over eight boards and two blocks per game. The team went 22-12. and You started every game, and as you mentioned, you were biggest tournament champs. And that victory against Villanova was 83 to 80. Apparently, from what I've read, you scored nine of your 15 points in the overtime periods. Right. Another guy from your team, uh, Leo Routens, all but secured the win on a tip in with about three seconds left in the third overtime.
1: Sort of. A very exciting game. I ended up being uh, your player of the game for the TV broadcast. So Leo tips the, you know, tips the shot in with three seconds to go to give us a uh, two point lead. Uh, And at the time, there was no three-point shot. It hadn't been put into college basketball yet. But Villanova still had a chance to tie. For their great coach, Raleigh Massimino called a timeout. Turned out they were out of timeouts. So it was a technical foul. And being the best free-throw shooter on the team, I you know, was given the task of making the free-throw. If I make the free-throw, we're now up three games clinched because there was no three-point line. There was no chance of them scoring three points in, in three seconds. So I went to the free throw line, obviously made the free throw game was clinched and uh, we went off. But it was actually down to that final, you know, mistake timeout that Villanova called. And, and that's what it took to clinch the game for us.
0: Incredible finish. Throughout your NBA career as well, you shot above 80% from the free throw line. You're a very sound fundamentally uh, throughout your career. But what do you credit that great free throw shooting percentage to over the years? Well,
1: going back to the earlier conversation, growing up essentially at basketball camp. I had a fantastic fundamental base. Even by NBA standards, my fundamentals were exceptional. Mm-hmm. Uh, because of my experiences when I was little. My dad actually led the league in free throw percentage in his era, shooting 90%. And so it was very much kind of a, a, a thing. Like I knew I was just going to be a good free throw shooter, like, like I had to be. Yep. Some guys don't take it that seriously. For me, you know, I want to get as many points as I can. I don't want to give any away, uh, by missing free throws. So. Uh, so I always worked very hard to be a you know a very good free throw shooter because like I said they're that's why they're free you might as well take them.
0: Absolutely. Going back to your final season in college, uh, in a controversial decision, Syracuse were overlooked for the NCAA tournament, right, and instead played in the 1981 NIT. Uh, which was the first time the school had played in that tournament final in its history. But you fell ultimately short in overtime 86 to 84 against Tulsa. Right. But the game prior to that, I read with interest in the NIT semi final against Purdue, you seriously injured your ankle in a bizarre sort of accident pre game. Can you elaborate briefly on the injury and what impact it had on you going forwards, Danny?
1: Sure. I'll back up just a little bit. So as I mentioned, we were the first Big East champions. Uh but it was still the first year of the conference and at that time the NCAA tournament which was the major tournament, the crown the national champion, uh was smaller, it was only 32 teams. So getting in was a big deal. And most of the major conferences there were fewer than today, uh had automatic bids. But because the Big East was a new conference, they wouldn't get their automatic bid till the next season. And that is the tournament champion winner would get the automatic bid for that conference. And then if you were, let's say you were a university of North Carolina and you won the regular season ACC, but lost in the conference tournament, then you would get in in what was called an at large bid for the top team. Because our regular season, we were just, you know, you know, we had peaked at the end of the year. Uh, we were in the middle of the pack in the big East. So even though we won the tournament, it was not an automatic entry to the NCAA yet. It would have been the next year. So we ended up on the, what they call on the bubble. Uh, one of the teams that was, you know, could have gone either way. And it was a huge controversy. We were probably the, you know, the biggest team not to make the NCAA tournament. Mm. But the NIT was still a very powerful tournament because again, uh, there were still lots of very, very good teams. Let's say the ACC had, you know, seven good teams. Only three or four would make the big tournament. So you still had three very good ACC teams and the same with the Big East that year, uh, in the NIT. In that way, the conference is a little different that the higher ranked team had the game at their home. So they didn't play neutral sites like they did in the NCAA tournament until the final four. And that was played in Madison Square Garden. So we ended up winning the, the conference games at our site, went to the final four and then shoot around the day of the game. You know, two baskets, everyone's shooting, lots of basketballs bouncing around. I went up for a little hook shot inside, came down, landed right on one of the basketballs bouncing and severely sprained my ankle, uh, the morning of the game. You know, did what you could do, taped it up, jogging, you know, ran up and down, limped around, ended up scoring the winning basket against Purdue in that game, uh, interestingly enough. Uh, but by the next day, it was, you know, I was completely fried. It was, you know, my ankle was worn and really injured, could barely move for the championship game. Uh, so I ended up playing limited minutes in the championship game. But our, one of our uh, team players, Eric Sanifer, a sophomore, had a huge game, led us all the way into overtime. Uh, and Tulsa, the team that beat us, had a, a couple of NBA players on it. Paul Pressy uh, was their star, a longtime NBA player. Mm. Uh, so it was just, again, one of those great games at the end of the day. It was a, you know, came down to a coin flip and uh, we lost a two point game at the end.
0: Mm, so close. So in 1981, you were named first team academic All American as well, uh, which is a fantastic achievement. And also you left college with averages of 8.2 points and 5.4 rebounds a game. Now, as we talked about, your minutes were restricted. Quite a bit your first three seasons, so you really blossomed as a senior. Uh, As we record this, you're the ninth all-time leader in career free throw percentage at 80.6 at Syracuse, so great achievement still to be in the top 10 there.
1: And actually, my senior year, I led the Big East in free throw percentage, 89%. Okay. That was an exciting time
0: making the most of every free shot. Now, in April of 1981, you played for the East team in the Aloha Classic in Hawaii, and you were named to the all-tournament team with guys like uh, Mike McGee, Danny Vrains, Kelly Trapuka, and Frank Johnson. Right. How important do you think that performance was in terms of the upcoming NBA draft and where your stock would be?
1: Uh, it actually was a huge influence uh, for me. So when I you know came out of Syracuse, again, this is way before... Uh, the internet way before games being televised, only the star teams got on TV. And so there wasn't a the level of scouting that there clearly is today where, you know, you can be in a rural village in the Cameroon and they find you. Yeah. Uh, but back then it was, you know, even a school like Syracuse, um, you know, if you're not having a great year, you don't get seen nearly as much. You know, services would hire guys to go scout the games live and write reports. Uh, but it wasn't the same as having every game on TV like you have now. So I was not an unknown, but like unknown against the top players because again I hadn't been a starter against too many of the top players. But in the Aloha Classic, which was the number one senior tournament at that time, uh, I was able to play against the top centers uh, in college at that time, and and every team was loaded with guys who ultimately became NBA stars. So it was uh, you know a very good tournament. Uh, you know guys like Tom Chambers, who was a perennial All Star. You mentioned Danny Vrains making the All Tournament team, Kelly Chupuka, uh All Star. Frank Johnson had a long career with Phoenix in Washington, NBA coach eventually, Darnell Valentine, a star player from Kansas. Uh, so on and on and on. And we actually were the weakest team Oh, right. coming in just uh, coincidentally, but we ended up winning the championship. Uh, a little luck was involved. Uh, the West team, which was dominant, ended up missing a layup at the buzzer of one of their games that would have sealed it. Oh. Uh, and we ended up beating them you know, in the standings. So we not only won the tournament, but Mike McGee and I uh, from our team made the all-tournament team. And right then I catapulted from who knows where to the second center in the college draft. So it was a huge deal for me to get uh, drafted at that time.
0: The Utah Jazz selected you with the 13th overall pick and I read a June 3rd article from 81 that said you were chosen as one of the 10 players to appear at the draft. What was that draft day experience like and and how did it feel when you heard your name called?
1: It was a super exciting time. Again, this coming to the draft is a relatively new thing uh obviously, today the draft is a spectacle national t v and all that, but back then it was it was a big deal uh to be one of the players invited to actually go to the draft. They were the players pegged to be the top draft picks, and uh you know nobody wanted a guy sitting there to the third round back then, there were ten rounds of the nBA draft now there's only two uh what's interesting is that when the jazz drafted me, they were one of the teams that I had no contact with all right, I did an interview with them i like I went out and interviewed with the Lakers with a few other teams before the draft, you know, so they could get to know me personally, that kind of thing. Uh, and obviously that process is way more advanced today. Uh, but the Jazz, I had no contact with. So it was a little bit out of the blue. I actually expected to be taken by Portland, uh, the Trailblazers, uh, or maybe one or two picks later, uh, because their coach, Jack Ramsey, played a very thinking man's game and thought I was a good fit for that. Uh, but the Jazz selected me and uh, like I said, out of the blue. I ended up uh, moving out to Salt Lake, uh, some pretty severe culture shock, uh, going from, uh, you know, Jewish kid from New York State to, uh, you know, going out to Salt Lake City in the early eighties. Uh, you know, I might as well have gone to the moon. (laughs) What was a great experience for me is the team was, was kind of down at the time. You know, we only won 25 games my rookie year, but I had a great play experience. Uh, I had super teammates uh you know great guys to play with had some budding stars Dale Griffith Dr Duncan Stein was on that team Adrian Dantley became a, a leading scorer in the league uh was on that team uh so you know we had some some good players and developed and uh so I got to play there for my first about year and a half uh and then I got traded to the uh, Denver Nuggets and at that point my career really took off because I was now a you know mature veteran who really understood the game better and uh, was able to you know really thrive with uh with the
0: Nuggets We'll get to Denver in just a second, just a few quick stats about your time in Utah. Uh, 20 games into your rookie season, coach Tom Nasulke was fired and he was replaced by Frank Layden, who would end up coaching Utah throughout most of the 1980s. Uh, as a rookie, you played all 82 games and started 20 of them. Really fascinating to see. You scored in double figures 30 times, which was outstanding. Uh, he had a season high of 22 points on two different occasions. So uh, really impressive numbers there.
1: Well, the interesting thing about that team, uh, and that season, we kind of limped along the first half of the year. We were just under 500, you know, near the playoffs, uh, but not in the playoffs. And then we went through a stretch near the end where kind of the wheels fell off. We lost 18 games in a row and, uh, you know, four games a week for a month. You know, that's, uh, that's a long time. Uh, at that point that we, you know, we were out of it. Uh, so 10 games to go in the season, Coach Layden put me in as the starter. And right then I said, no, we're going to win this game tonight. We are not going to go 19. You know, they put me in as a starter. I'm going to show that we're going to win. We ended up winning that game. Went 6-4 and four the last 10 games after losing 18 in a row. And so we ended up on a good note. And it was, a like I said, a, a great leadership experience, opportunity for me, you know, to come in and, you know, kind of bring life to the team. That at that point, like I said, we were, uh, you know, pretty down after losing that stretch of games and then only having 10 games left in the season.
0: Oh, that's great to hear. I'm glad that you had a uh, good impact on the team there going forwards towards the end of that season. Now, you started the first 50 games of the 1983 season with Utah, and you averaged over 12 points, 9 boards, and 3 assists in only 33 minutes a game. Uh, Interestingly, two days after you dropped 21 points and 10 boards versus Denver, you were traded to the Nuggets. Uh, This was February the 7th of 83, Right. Did you hear any rumblings that you were, uh, on the trading block and, and how did you feel about the move to Denver?
1: So the first answer is no, zero rumblings that I was on the trading block. Wow. You know, looking back, there was a funny incident. We were in the hotel, uh, in Denver and I went to lunch, you know, kind of pregame lunch, went down to the lobby and I saw, uh, our GM, Frank Layden, who you mentioned was also the coach sitting with the Denver Nuggets GM named Carl Shear and they're, you know, sitting there having lunch and I happened to walk by and knew them both pretty well. So I said, Hey guys, uh, how's business? And they both start laughing. Uh, and that was it. I walked along and well, it turned out they were talking about trading me. They were making the deal. wow. And I walked by right in the middle of them making the deal to trade for me and saying, hey guys, how's business? Turned out business was pretty good. So uh, I had the big game, uh, as you mentioned, ended up, uh, we flew back uh, to Salt Lake the next morning. And then I get a call 11 o'clock at night from Frank Layden it says, hey, do you mind if I come over? And I'm like, let's see, the GM wants to come over to my house 11 o'clock at Sunday night. This can't be good. Mm. So he comes over, lets me know that I've just been traded to Denver. I immediately call my agent, who is uh, in Boston. So it's 2 in the morning. I wake him up. And I go, Pop, Bobby you won't believe it. I just got traded. He goes, yeah, to Denver. I'm like, what do you mean, yeah, to Denver? Like, how come you know and I don't know? Well, they didn't want me to be nervous before the game, so... <laughs> uh, you know, thinking about it. So they were thinking about the trade and a lot of it depended. And since I had a big game, boom, that sealed the deal. Wow. You know, Frank told me there's a flight at seven thirty. Be beyond it. Uh, so now it's 11 at night. Didn't sleep a wink all night, you know, just packed a bag. Uh, turned out it was the week before the all-star game. Hmm. So I ended up uh, flying in, uh, you know, Monday morning, the team held up practice. Uh, so, cause I had to get a physical, do the press conference, do all that. Had practice in the afternoon, got on a plane to fly to San Diego to play the Clippers the next night. And I, you know, by then I was Friday. You know, I hadn't slept in a day and a half. So I'm, I fall asleep on the plane. I wake up and I'm looking around and there's Kiki Vandeweghe and Dan Issel. And I'm like, who are these guys and where are we going? <laughs> and I went, Oh my God, I've been traded. <laughs> and I had no idea where the plane was going. You know, it was just, we just got on it. <laughs> so we played the Clippers on Tuesday, flew home, played on Wednesday. And then it was the All-Star break. So I immediately went back to Salt Lake, packed up my car. They had a guy drive it out for me. Uh, the funny part was that I flew in. Uh, we had one practice and then went on a two-week Eastern road trip from Denver. So I didn't even have an apartment yet. So uh, one of my teammates, a guy named Mike Evans, had just been uh, picked up from the minor league on the Saturday, the game that I played there. And he had just moved into a place, so we made a deal. I threw all my stuff in his uh, in his living room. And uh, I let his then-girlfriend at the time borrow my car to look for a job. So we went on a two-week road trip. The funniest part was, uh you know, so I had been in town for a couple hours. He'd only been in town for one day. And so we got a teammate to drive us to the airport because the girlfriend was at work. So we fly back in after two weeks. The teammate, unfortunately, had to do something. So he says, hey, just jump in a cab. No problem. So Mike and I jump in a cab. And the guy says, uh, where to, buddy? And Mike and I are <laughs> looking at each other going, uh Do you know where we live? I don't know where we live. Neither of us had a clue where the apartment was. He'd only been there one day. I'd only been there an hour, and that was two weeks ago. So poor Mike and I were looking around like one of those comedies like, uh, uh. and there was no internet, right? You couldn't, there were no Google Maps. So it turned out, luckily, I had kept the business card of the rental agent and it had the address on it. So we were able to make it home, finally. Ugh. What a transition. Those are the good old days.
0: That's hilarious. I love that. I really appreciate these stories, Danny. That's, that's so good. Uh, so Denver would finish the season 45 and 37, and that was good for a number six seed in the playoffs. Yep. You upset Phoenix 2-1 in the first round before losing out to George Gervin's San Antonio Spurs in the Western Conference semis. So what did you make of that first uh, experience of the NBA playoffs?
1: From an upgrade standpoint, the Denver team was way ahead of where we were at Utah. Uh, Utah got better. They drafted John Stockton and Carl Malone the, you know, the two years following, you know, so they pretty quickly got to be a, a you know, a high competitor for us. Uh, but Denver, you know, the excitement was great. So it just kind of set the tone. Uh, back in, the, in, in the seventies, there was a competing league to the NBA called the ABA. Mm-hmm. Think of like the minor leagues a little bit. They were very swashbuckling. Uh, they had to get attention. So they did all kinds of crazy promotions. Uh, they put in new rules that that's where the three point line was discovered. That's where the dunk contest. Uh, was done. Uh, and the ABA was a very different style of play, where the NBA was thought to be kind of very staid and boring and fundamental-based. The ABA was wide open, high tempo, flying dunks. They had the red, white, and blue basketball as their trademark. They were getting to the point where they were competing heavily with the NBA for players. And what made the ABA almost the Premier League was when they signed Dr. J, Julius Irving, who was the biggest star of the era. And so in 1976, the NBA was kind of tired of competing, and they bought and merged the ABA with the NBA. So there were four teams of the ABA that made the the transition into the NBA, one of them being Denver, San Antonio was another one, Uh, the other two, of course, Indiana Pacers and the New Jersey Nets. Then there were the New York Nets on Long Island. And uh, so in those early years, uh, 81, 82, 83, there was still a heavy ABA influence. Uh You mentioned George Gervin, who is an ABA star. Dan Issel, the star of our team, was an ABA star. Moses Malone, uh, if you know some of these names, were all ABA stars. Dr. J, uh, who came into the NBA. And with them, they brought eventually the dunk contest, the three-point line, uh, and the high-tempo style of play. So when you talk about Denver and San Antonio playing in a series, it was very much like the old ABA style. Very run and gun, very high scoring, super exciting. They had uh you know star players artist Gilmore was a hall of fame center George Gervin you mentioned hall of fame guard uh very very tough team to play and uh you know and at that era you know like I said that close to the ABA merger was a a super exciting time Mm,
0: incredible time and there's some fantastic highlights on YouTube if you sort of search them out enough you can see some great great highlights I think the dunk contest you referred to back in 1976 was actually held at Denver
1: that was the ABA dunk contest where Dr. J dunked from the foul line yeah correct And then the follow-up to that, interestingly enough, was the 1984 All-Star Game back in Denver, and that's where they rejuvenated the dunk contest. Dr. J was in it again, did the dunk for the foul line again, uh, but now as a member of the 76ers, that brought back and popularized the dunk contest as it is today. So I'm going to give you one piece of basketball history that's relatively unknown, but that I think you'll get a kick out
0: of. Awesome. What is it? (laughs)
1: If you remember, I mentioned that the ABA had as their trademark the red, white, and blue ball. They were the American Basketball Association, mm-hmm. so they used the American flag colors on the ball. Now you may see it with the Globetrotters, for instance. You know, they used the same type of ball. Uh, but back in the ABA era, that ball was the trademark of the league. Probably the greatest marketing blunder in history, the commissioner of the ABA, George Mikan, interestingly enough, the first superstar of the NBA, never trademarked the red, white, and blue ball. So what happened was they sold millions and millions of them across the country, but the ABA never got a royalty. That single mistake would have given them enough revenue to actually buy the NBA. It would have worked the other way. So the ABA would have rolled up the NBA instead of the NBA rolling up the ABA. That one marketing blunder uh, you know, changed history that much.
0: That is incredible. I haven't actually read Terry Pluto's book, Loose Balls, It might be touched on at least to some respect, but that's really an incredible oversight, isn't it? I guess. In hindsight, it's what could have been.
1: Again, uh, you know, one of those things that, uh, you know, they were on a shoestring starting up. Nobody thought of it, never got done. And who'd have thought that that would have been such a big influence?
0: Ah, remarkable. You joined the Nuggets in 1983 and then you played seven full seasons in Denver through to the 1990 season and averaged almost 10 points and six boards a game in about 21 minutes of contest. Uh, I'd love to ask you about one particular game in 1983. Well, it was the 83 84 season, a three overtime game, Detroit at Denver. Uh huh. Your Nuggets lost 186 to 184. Um, Keegan Vanderway had 51 points. Alex English had 47 and Dan Issel, 28. You scored 11. And for Detroit, Isaiah Thomas had 47 points. John Long, 41. And Kelly Chapuka had 35. Incredibly, each team only attempted two three-point shots, which is probably the most remarkable thing about the game. What do you actually remember about that amazing, highest scoring game in NBA history, uh, that three-overtime epic?
1: What's funny is when you think of the Detroit Pistons, you think of the bad boys, the years they won the championship with Chuck Daly as a very slow-down, methodical, 90-point a game team. But before that, again, in that era of uh, high-scoring uh, teams, they were a run-and-gun team. Kelly Tripuka, who we had earlier mentioned from the Aloha Classic, was on that team. A couple of side points. You mentioned the three-point line. Uh, the three-point line was added to the NBA in 1979. And at that time, it was thought of as a shot of last resort. You only shot a three pointer if you were, you know, down five with a minute to go and you had to get back in the game. It was never considered to be a regular, uh, shot that you would take in the game. So there weren't very many long range shooters. You know, 20 footers, uh, was a long shot and this was three feet beyond that. And so that's why there were so few taken. Uh, but it shows you when, when you play a, a super high tempo game uh we played what we used to call hot potato basketball and that means it passed without touching the floor like you got it like it was boiling hot and you passed it quickly to the next guy <laughs> yep. and we used to talk about move the ball move the people the teams were both pretty good defensive teams but the offense was so high octane in those eras guys were were very good shooters uh and the ball moved and you ran up and down the court and it was it was tough to guard when both teams were running up and down so at the end of regulation in the 48 minutes, it was, I believe, 145 to 145. Uh, and throughout the entire game, nobody ever got a big lead. I don't think anyone even maybe even had an eight-point lead throughout the game. It was just back and forth and back and forth. And guys making shots, everybody was hot in the game. Uh, and teams were defending, are you getting pissed off? Or you know, They're scoring easy. So, you know, making shots. So, you know, guys were, were guarding, but everybody was just on fire uh, making shots. And you think in overtime, right, the game would slow down. But, you know, do the math. In the 15 minutes of overtime, it was 41 to 39. And in every overtime, we went into the last 30 seconds with the lead. We ended up losing the game, I think, on a couple of free throws uh, at the end of the game. It was, again, one of those coin flip games that, uh, you know, just went down to the wire. And uh, one call here or there made the difference. You know, I remember years later, uh, I watched part of the game. The NBA had a cable channel, NBA TV, and they played some of the classic games. And I was just marveling at how well the teams passed the ball and moved and cut and hit the open guy and made shots. And, you know, it was just a very, very well-played game. I mean, it was just a, uh, you know, you hate to be on the losing end of one of those classic games. It was nothing but just a super exciting game.
0: Classic is a perfect description for it. The full game, I believe, is available on YouTube as well to watch. I think it's the Detroit telecast though, So it's George Blaha and whoever he was commentating with. They're a little bit biased, to say the least, (laughs) towards the Pistons.
1: Exactly, saying all the nice things about the Pistons.
0: Exactly right. Now, your 1985 season was the deepest run that you had in the playoffs. The Nuggets disposed of San Antonio and your former team, Utah, which I'm sure was probably satisfying, before running into the buzzsaw that was the uh, 1985 LA Lakers in the Western Conference Finals. They go on to win the NBA title over the Boston Celtics. Right. Was it great to defeat Utah on the way to the Lakers matchup? And what sort of memories do you have playing against that super talented Showtime team?
1: You know, the way the NBA was at that time, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk, uh, in today's era about dynasties. In today's era, you had the Warriors, uh, winning everything. You know, you know, obviously LeBron James going to the finals with his teams every year. Uh, but that's nothing new. Uh, you know, if you go throughout history, the Minneapolis Lakers were the first dynasty winning the three first NBA titles. The Boston Celtics in the sixties won everything. There's the Jordan Bulls that if Jordan doesn't retire, they win eight in a row. They won three. Jordan retired, came back. They won three more. And then in the 80s, uh, the Celtics and the Lakers were the two dominant teams. And because of the way the schedules were made, uh, the schedules were weighted by the teams in your conference. So they're heavily in your division, you played every team six times. The other teams in your conference, you played five times. And the teams in the other conference, you only played twice, once home, once on the road. So to get into the playoffs, everyone in the West knew that you had to beat the Lakers. Everyone in the East knew you had to beat the Celtics. So in the East, the teams would kind of build their rosters around beating the Celtics. And in the West, we build our rosters on how do you beat the Lakers, which is why the West were all the run and gun teams and the East was all the push and shove teams. And uh, then they get to the finals and uh, you know, the, the Celtics and the Lakers went at it, I think, eight out of the ten years, uh, and with the Lakers winning five and the Celtics winning three. Uh so in that year, you know, beating the Lakers was was, you know, very, very difficult, almost unheard of. Uh, so we went, uh, and we were having a strong year, as you mentioned. We go to LA for game one and game two in the fabulous form. Uh, the first game we get drilled to get, uh, you know, get blown out the first game. Uh, so everyone, of course, thought it's over. We're going to get swept. You know, who are we to think we can play with the Lakers? So our coach, Doug Moe, who is a swashbuckling New Yorker, you know, they go, coach, what do you think of your chances? He goes, what are you talking about? We're going to win game two by 20. <laughs> you know, all the press was like, ha ha ha. Yeah, sure. <laughs> So, game starts and we're, you know, we're digging, we're fighting and through the game, Magic and I are going after it. We have a little scuffle thing and not a fight per se, but, you know, we just crash into each other, wrestle around. So, I start running back down the court and all of a sudden, Magic comes running up at me, pissed off. uh, And then Kareem runs up behind me and jumps on my back and puts me in a chokehold. So, we fight to the ground, you know, get separated and Kareem gets thrown out of the game in LA. You know, he got called for a technical foul, thrown out of the game. Uh, cause I didn't start the fight. He did. So I go to the line and a sudden I look around and here I am in LA and 10 deep out of the crowd, the fans circle the court and they're all, you know, cursing me out, giving me the bird, all that. You know, you suck, F you, da, da, da. And I'm like going, damn, this is the fabulous form. And I got Jack Nicholson flipping me off, you know, make the free throw. So now I'm pissed off. Right. I mean, who the hell are you? Whoever. Uh, and we go on a rampage and beat him by 20. So that's the huge story. Now game three in Denver, Kareem is, you know, facing suspension. If it was today's era, uh, he would have been suspended for the rest of the playoffs. Yeah, true. Uh, back then they didn't do anything. So he ended up playing the rest of the series. <laughs> uh, we ended up losing a close game three. Uh, and then game four, uh, we were ahead going into the last play, loose ball came off the rim, missed call by the ref. They get a bad tip into the buzzer. They sneak out with a win, and then we end up losing the series. But uh, that tip goes the other way. It's 2-2 going back to L.A., and it's anyone's series because we had big momentum. But uh, but they ended up winning that series. It was a, you know a crazy-fought series. And years later, near the end of my career, I got traded to the Lakers as part of a salary cap deal. That's right. And while I was there, Magic Johnson took over as the coach. And we were always friendly competitors. My style of play was great with Magic. That was one player especially I would have loved to play with. Uh, so Magic takes over as the coach. That was his HIV, you, know, you know, situation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we were sitting in the locker room one day and he used to talk about how the only team, uh, besides the Celtics he feared in the NBA was us. Wow. Was the Denver Nuggets, that high flying team that, uh, you know, that was the team they dreaded playing and they felt lucky that they won that series. You know, Magic and I are good buddies to this day, even though we are, like I said, friendly competitors for all those years. It was a great time to be in the league. You know, you had, you know, Bird Magic, then you had Jordan come in in 84, Akeem Olajuwon. And it was the era of the centers. We used to joke that's when dinosaurs ruled the earth. Every team had great <laughs> centers. Uh, the game was played completely inside out where the centers, you know, controlled the tempo. You know, you think about it. When I came in, he had Kareem Jabbar, Moses Malone in his prime, Robert Parrish. Right after that, you had Patrick Ewing and Akeem Olajuwon and Ralph Sampson. Uh, you know, Alvin Adams is an all-star. Tree Rollins would have been a you know superstar in today's era uh you know you had rick schmitz at seven four you had you know obviously you mark eaton um
0: david robinson
1: just said on and on there were there were 10 20, point scores at the center position at the same time uh when i was in the league you know talk about Artis gilmore in san antonio bill walton you know had been in the league at that time uh so just an amazing time to be a big at that part of the career
0: just moving on, in 1986, you lost the Western Conference semi finals to the eventual NBA finalists, Houston, who got bounced by Boston in the finals. And in 87, you were ousted in uh, round one against the Lakers, who would go on again to win the title. Your best individual season was arguably 1988. It was also the franchise's best regular season record of 54-28 and in that decade of the 80s, and you also won the Midwest Division title, and your averages were almost 14 points, more than eight boards a game in just under 27 minutes a night. So your scoring average also improved to over 16 points a game during the 88 playoffs. You made it to the Western semis. Can you talk about your excellent play, given the absence of a few key players on the Denver roster?
1: Sure. Well, what was interesting about that is, uh, you know, my stats with Denver, uh, had gone up every year and we were a team loaded with offense mm. every year. We, we led the league in scoring, uh, at, you know, around 120, 125 points a game for most of that decade. You know, one year, I think, you know, Kiki, uh, Vandewey, Dan Essel and Alex English were all in the top five in the league in scoring at the same time. Incredible. And usually teams will put out stats. They'll say, well, when, you know, when this guy scores 30, the team's record is, you know, 27 and 14, or when this guy, you know, does whatever. Well, our stat was when Kiki, Dan, and Alex combined for 90 in the same game, you know, and that was like almost half the games. Yeah. Because, you know, when you're scoring 120, to 140, it wasn't unusual for us to have a 45 point quarter at the tempo we played, you know, so I kind of became a bigger part over time and ended up kind of working my way into the top five. Uh, Like I said, we were loaded with scores. At that era, I was, like, right on the verge of being an all-star. So I was, like, in that next kind of group up and coming, uh, you know, hitting my prime six, seven years in the league. Uh, but the following season, I ended up having ankle surgery. I had bone spurs in both ankles, missed a big part of the year, so kind of got a little bit derailed at that point. Came back. It wasn't a serious thing, uh, but it was, you know, to do it in the middle of the season and then have to try and come back during the season is always tough. And then the following year, the team disbanded. You know, it was 89-90. Uh, kind of that run had happened. Uh, Dan Issel had retired a few years before. Alex English was now in, in his mid thirties. I was, uh, uh, in my early thirties. And so the team disbanded, I got traded to Milwaukee and, uh, was, and it was just a different situation. You know, I wasn't a good fit, uh, for that style of team. And so, uh, uh, then you, you know, you mentioned that you're in Phoenix, 94, 95. We are the dominant team in the league. Charles Barkley, Kevin Johnson, uh, Danny Manning and I came in the same year, uh, with Wayman Tisdale as free agents. And really put us over the top. We were the dominant team. Uh, and then Danny Manning tore his ACL about the midpoint of the season mm. and took us from being the number one team to like in the top group. We ended up playing Houston in the playoffs in the second round. Uh, and that's the year Akeem Elijah went crazy. He dominated David Robinson after that. But we played him tough. We were up three to one. We lost game five and game seven at home at the buzzer, both games. Uh and if we had got by Houston, uh, you know, which we should have, uh, you know, like I said, that was a, a coin flip you know, we felt we had a run to the championship. We had uh, David Robinson in San Antonio. Then it ended up being Orlando uh, in the finals, you know, when Shaq was a young player their first year going to the finals. But that's the year we were really poised for the championship. That was a, that was a tough way to end the season. And, uh, uh, but, but great experiences, you know, great teammates, uh, you know, a huge amount of fun playing uh, in Phoenix, which is, uh, one of the premier cities, uh, you know, to play in every game was sold out, uh, you know, super exciting. And, uh, uh, they, you know, they've since added an NHL team and a major league baseball team, but at that time it was just us uh, and the Cardinals. So uh, the football team. So it's uh, uh, every game was an adventure uh, in Phoenix.
0: Thanks for sharing all those stories. Just one last question about Denver, if you don't mind. Sure. In terms of scoring, your NBA career high came in the '89 season, as on February the fourth of '89, to be precise. You exploded for 37 points versus your former team, Utah. And best yet, the Nuggets had a 127 to 126 win. Do you actually recall that game? And was there any uh, added motivation behind that offensive outburst?
1: Well, as I mentioned before, I was never the first option because we were always loaded with scores. So typically, my highest scoring games were games in which somebody was struggling. You know, they, they weren't getting a lot of production or maybe somebody was in foul trouble and I was getting extra minutes. Uh, and in that game specifically, we had added Walter Davis to our roster, the superstar from Phoenix, uh, who got traded up with uh, the great two guard. The funny part about that game is that Mark Eaton, who is the, the all-star player for the Jazz, and I were great friends. We were actually roommates my second year with the Jazz. He'd been drafted as the backup center. And I used to joke, I made him a star because I got traded, so he got to be the starter. <laughs> so Mark and I had lunch uh, in the hotel that day. And you know the team, most of the team was around guys who I was very friendly with. So Mark and I are out having lunch and then later, you know, I have the big game score 37 because again, we had a couple guys struggling and uh, Walt Davis ended up hitting a, a corner shot at the buzzer to win. It It was an incredible game. Uh, and then Mark told me later that the whole trip back, he was getting brutalized thinking that, oh, he and I made some deal at lunch that he's going to let me score a bunch of points and, <laughs> you know, I'll pay him money or something because it takes me to lunch and then I drop 37 on him, you know, so uh, so poor Mark was mad at me for the whole next year.
0: I love it. Mark's a former guest on the show, actually. He's a great guy to chat to. And also, I've had Kelly Gipuca, who i have talked about a few times as well. He's previously guested on the show too. So, yeah, some great memories have been shared there. But there, yeah, that's a fantastic effort to, to score 37 points in a game. Just a couple of quick questions to round things out. Danny, you've been really generous with your time. Thanks so much. In the lead-up to our chat today, I actually asked you about a vague memory I had of a TV spot that featured you involving a swimming pool and a diving board. <laughs> that was in the recesses of my mind somewhere, but thankfully for me, I wasn't going insane. Do you mind just elaborating a little bit on this? Uh, It was a piece that actually aired on NBA Inside Stuff when you're with the Milwaukee Bucks.
1: The NBA had a magazine show called Inside Stuff. It was a half-hour show on Sunday. You know, again, this is before social media and all that. So that was one of the ways the NBA put out stories, uh, human interest stories about the players. I had uh, uh, married an Olympian, Olympic springboard diver who was uh, named Wendy uh, Lucero at the time. And she was training for the next Olympics. Uh, she went in 88 in Seoul, Korea. The pool she trained in was at the University of Michigan. Uh, we ended up doing a thing out at the pool and they had an underwater window, uh, where the TV crews could go and film the underwater shots. This is before, you know, they, you know, now they do it with scuba gear and, and waterproof cameras. We did a little bit, uh, where I went off the diving board and they filmed it after me, you know, going in the water. And then I mouthed, uh, you know, their opening tagline was something like, and that's the inside stuff. So they they did the voiceover with all the bubbles coming out of my mouth, and it was a pretty cute piece. And then they you know did a feature on uh, on me and Wendy going on the diving circuit. Her big uh, season was the summer, uh, so it was very compatible. You know, I would train with her, you know, go with her in the off season and uh, and help train. So a very cute bit that we did. I was an excellent cannonball guy. <laughs> I can imagine. So I do have a, a long history of uh, of going off the board.
0: Some big splashes involved there, I'm sure. Exactly. We'll round out your career. You played with the Orlando Magic for your last three seasons in the league. Two of those years, you made the playoffs. Um, How was that run in Orlando, which would be your final NBA stop after 18 seasons?
1: We had a great run there. Uh, That was actually the year that Shaq left Orlando and went to LA for the Lakers. I was brought in as the uh, backup center that year to Felton Spencer, who was the starting center for the Jazz at the time. Felton didn't work out, and so they brought in Ronnie Cycley. Uh, my Syracuse compatriot, uh, we didn't play at the same time, uh, but Ronnie was also a Syracuse grad, uh, played most of his career in Miami with the Heat. Uh, so he and I were the centers there. By then it was, you know, I was one of the older players and actually became the oldest player in the league, uh, played till I was 40. Uh, and then halfway through my last year, uh, Ronnie got traded to New Jersey. And so, uh, ironically here I was the, became the oldest starting player in the league. And uh, as I mentioned, Shaq left as a free agent and left under very disharmonious circumstances, we'll say. It was a, uh, a bad divorce. Mm-hmm. He ended up uh, uh, burning a bunch of bridges on his way out of town. And, you know, and the fans, you know, kind of half chased him out of town. Very tough time. And as I mentioned earlier, remember, he was in LA. They only came once a year yep. uh, to play in Orlando. So the first year uh, they came back, he had broken his thumb. And so he didn't play in the game. Uh, so that was the big revenge game that he came back. He never played in that one. Year two, it's near the end of the season in April. Uh, and it's the game of the week, Sunday game of the week, the big, you know, revenge match, the grudge match of Shaq coming back from LA to uh, Orlando for the first time. The day before the game, they trade Ronnie Cycling to New Jersey, and I am now the only center on the roster. <laughs> so oldest player in the league playing against Shaq in the revenge game in Orlando on national television. <laughs> So as you can imagine, the game was a complete spectacle. Uh, the whole pregame show was like lamb to slaughter, right? <laughs> they thought the Shaq was going to get a 100 and tear the rims down and <laughs> burn the building on his way out. <laughs> so it turned out that I went to my veteran fundamental game, uh, drew a couple of charges, played great position, scored double figures myself, uh, set him in a lot of screens. Uh, he ended up having a decent game, but uh, we ended up winning at the end. Uh, Nick Anderson drilled a three-pointer to win it. Uh, and you would have thought we won the NBA championship. The place went crazy. And the funny part was, by the second half, the entire announcing team, which was uh, Isaiah Thomas, was the uh, color guy. Bob Costas. All they were talking about was me dominating Shaq. And uh, <laughs> uh, it was it was funny how much it had turned around. And uh, you know, because I was giving Shaq kind of fits, and uh, then he came back, out a little hot at the end, but we ended up winning it. Probably one of the great games in Orlando Magic history.
0: Is that the game where Nick Anderson then mimicked Shaq's run as he went down the court afterwards?
1: Yeah, when he ran down, at the, <laughs> uh, that was the play. And the funny part was, so uh, if you look at the play, we're running a, a screen down. So I'm screening down for Nick coming off as our great shooter. Eddie Jones is guarding him, six seven, really good defender. It's near the last play of the game, and I'm setting the screen like you wouldn't believe. Uh, I'm saying Nick's getting open, and I set this monster screen. Eddie Jones had to run around. Gave Nick enough room to just catch and turn and, and make the shot. And after the game, he came up to me and he said, you know, I never had to look at Eddie Jones because I knew that you set the pick. I was open.
0: Oh, great.
1: So if you watch the play, he breaks open. He's got three steps on Eddie Jones who tries to close out, but uh, gets there just in time to watch Nick drill the three. Again, a hugely satisfying, not only win, but a great play between teammates.
0: We could talk forever about all this sort of stuff. You've been so great with your time. Thank you very much. A couple of quick things to finish off. You were named to the Syracuse's All-Century team, I believe, in the year 2000. Yeah. Uh, and then you've been inducted to the Jewish Sports Hall of Fame in 2014. Uh Plenty of other honors. You're currently doing a uh, a radio show with another former Syracuse grad, Atan Thomas. Right. Called Centers of Attention, one of the great names of a radio show, if I've ever heard one. What other things keep you uh involved with the game these days?
1: Centers of Attention, two NBA players from Syracuse. Atan played, I think, 12 years in the league. Mm-hmm. I played 18. Uh, he came out of Syracuse in, um, uh, you know, much later than me. I was 81. He was, I want to say, 2000. So, you know, different generations. Uh, but, uh, you know, but we have a great rapport and a uh, super sharp guy. So we would really tell player stories. You know, we don't talk about, you know, this team won by 10 and this is what happened. We talk about, you know, kind of the player events, uh, you know, players' point of view. What are they thinking? How is it playing on a team when this happens or when that happens? Um, so it, it's it's a really nice uh, kind of point of view. We do a lot of issues. Uh, we talk SU sports as well, so things that we're familiar with. You know, what are the big stories in, in football? Uh, again, not who's winning and who's losing. So that's a lot of fun to do. That I also do the pregame shows uh, for Syracuse. Uh, but my day job is I'm a partner in a startup. I uh, was very involved in uh, in real estate. Uh, I had a, a real estate development business for many years. I also did a lot of economics. I work for an economics firm doing sports economics projects. So the job I'm doing now is uh, I'm a partner in a startup firm uh, called TrustLayer, which we're doing. Uh, we're basically automating uh, a lot of processes, legacy processes in the construction business. So we're using artificial intelligence to turn manual processes into automated ones to really speed up and increase not only uh, how fast the jobs are done, but how effectively and helping builders reduce risk. Uh, so that's what I'm doing for my for my fun day job. And then I... Uh, uh, like I said, do my daily show and then, uh, the Syracuse pregame shows.
0: Okay, great. So you're keeping very busy, no doubt.
1: And I have a teenage basketball player. So I'm, uh, I'm also very involved in youth coaching. I've coached his team since he was about 12 off and on. You know, sometimes I'd, you know, help assist. I'm the assistant coach for his high school team. Uh, you know, so I'm able to stay involved with, uh, with the youth development, which is, which is hugely satisfying. Uh, you know, and really give back the experience I had, you know, to understanding the fundamentals of the game. And, and really teach the love for the game that, that I got uh, from
0: my experience. That's great. You're talking about Logan. Right. I'm sure I saw Logan on a YouTube clip interviewing LeBron James uh, for Sports Illustrated Kids. Would that be right?
1: You did. You did. He he was a... uh uh, a reporter for Sports Illustrated for Kids for a year when he was 12. Uh, so he got media passes to the All-Star game, interviewed all the All-Stars. Hmm. Uh, he interviewed Mark Cuban on the set of the Shark Tank. Wow. Uh, Jim Bayheim in his office, uh, you know, did a lot of great, uh, great events. Charles Barkley on the TNT set, uh, before the games. Uh, he interviewed Barry Zito, the Cy Young award-winning pitcher in the dugout, uh, for the San Francisco Giants when they were at spring training in, in uh, Phoenix. A great experience for him. He actually is going to be writing a book about that. Uh, so I'll tell you the quick, funny side story is, as I mentioned, my wife is an Olympian. Mm-hmm. So in 2012, we all went to the London Olympics. And because she was a former Olympian, she ended up uh, being, having access to the uh, Olympic reception area called the USA house where, uh, you know, a lot of the former Olympians or, you know, the current Olympians, when they're in the city in London at, the, at that time can meet with sponsors or just have a place to go rest and relax during the day. Uh, if they're on tours, whatever. So we went there to watch opening ceremonies. And Apollo Ono, the famous uh, speed skater, the short track speed skater was there because he was doing TV. So we watched the opening uh, ceremonies and uh, we went and met him because uh, Logan had uh, only known him from Dancing with the Stars, really, when he won that. So we got to say hello and they were both about the same height at the time. You know, he's uh, you know, kind of a little guy, you know, five, six, five, seven. <laughs> when I teach Logan how to, when he meets a lot of celebrities, because he naturally does, I say, ask a life question, you know, as a way to start a conversation. So he'd ask, for instance, like, who is the best mentor you had or or what uh, piece of advice did you get that you still use today? Like what success principle do you still use in your life today? So he asked Apollo Ono that and Apollo Ono says, you know, hard work is a myth. Consistent hard work is the key. You have to improve every day. You can't just work hard once in a while. And the key to success is you have to do something every day to achieve your goal. Now we told him that 50 times, <laughs> but when Apollo Ono told him, He goes, oh, you won't believe it. Apollo owner just told me he did it. And he can recite (laughs) to this day the exact conversation. And we're like, well, duh. I mean, uh, so the idea was that, you know, kids listen to other people more than their parents. So we started this project of him interviewing famous people with these kind of issues uh, to put together, you know, like a success manual for kids. And we called it Logan's Heroes. (laughs) That's clever. Uh, There's a famous TV show in the US in the 60s. Logan's Heroes. Logan's Heroes. It's kind of familiar. Yep. For the name. And that's how we ended up getting the uh, Sports Illustrated for Kids uh, gig, because I, you know, it turned out that a buddy of mine, another Syracuse guy, is the editor for uh, SI Kids. So he said, great, we're going to make him a reporter, and he's going to go do this, some of these stories. So he uh, went around the country and did all these major interviews, and now he's in high school, and uh, he's ready to put it together in a book called uh, Logan's Heroes, and we'll see about getting that project done.
0: That's fantastic. What a great uh, effort that is for such a young guy in uh, high school to be putting that together from experiences already gained. Uh, the last question I love to ask my guests is, Basketball Digest had a regular feature. It was called The Game I'll Never Forget. Yep. We may have already touched on it uh, in this conversation, but is there one game you can pick from your entire career that stands out more than any other?
1: Well, ironically, we've touched on all of them. <laughs> my high school championship game was the greatest game in high school. Yep. Uh, the Maccabi gold medal game in 1977 was my greatest international game. Both the 186-184 game and the Shaq and Orlando game were probably the highlights of, uh you know, the greatest game for my NBA career and the triple overtime game in college.
0: There you go.
1: We've actually talked about, yeah, the five greatest games all, all came up in our conversation.
0: Fantastic. Well, Danny, again, it's been a real thrill to have you as a guest on the show. Thanks for making yourself available for this period of time. Uh, I hope we can do it again sometime in the future, but until then, all the best.
1: Absolutely. Thanks, Adam.
0: Thanks for listening. I welcome your interaction with the show. You can suggest topics or guests you want to hear conversations with. You can leave a voicemail. Simply visit slash voice, click start recording, leave a message, and press stop. You can even listen back before submitting. Press send, and you're done. Time to share another great review from a fan of the show. Thanks to Joe on Apple Podcasts Australia. It's titled Brilliant, short and succinct, and it reads, Amazing podcast, a comprehensive record of everything Jordan-era bulls. Thanks very much, Joe. Much appreciated. Worldwide, the show now has 118 ratings on Apple Podcasts with an average of four and a half stars. Thanks for your continued support. If you add a review, I'd love to read it out on a future episode. Your ratings and reviews are one of the best ways that you can support the podcast. If you enjoy the show, please do tell your basketball-loving friends about it. As I love to say, your word-of-mouth recommendations are worth their weight in gold. Stay up to date with my podcast and subscribe to my monthly email newsletter. You'll receive exclusive details on upcoming podcast episodes, future high-profile guests to appear on the show, and more. Simply visit com slash news. You can subscribe to my show in various ways. Search for In All Airness, three words, on your podcast app of choice. The show is on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Android, Pocket Casts, and more. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show and share my web address with your friends and colleagues, Inallannis.com. Check out the podcast archive for plenty more episodes with high-profile guests. Follow me on Twitter at Inallannis. Please add your like to the show's social hub, facebook.com slash Inallannis. Join me next time for another edition of the show.